Episode 77 Satellite Tracking The Early Days Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not for profit podcast produced by me, Gurbir Singh, amateur astronomer and writer based in the UK. I produce this podcast for my own education and share it as a free educational resource with anyone who has an interest. ATUK has no subscribers, ads, and you do not need to log in. For more information, please see the About page at www.astrotalkuk.org. Sven Gran has been working in the space field in one way or another for over 50 years. Officially retired, he continues to work as a project leader for a student satellite at the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. He is perhaps best known for his work in tracking satellites launched by the secretive Soviet Union during the 1960s and 70s. In those pre-internet days, his work, along with that of others, helped to identify individual mission characteristics, such as mission types, members of the crew, take-off and landing times. He recorded over 1,000 conversations from orbiting spacecraft as they flew over Sweden. For example, here is a 20-second clip from the 2nd of July 1974, where cosmonaut Pavel Popovich is speaking on board Soyuz 14. In this interview, Sven speaks about the impact of the space race on his choice of career, his work on sounding rockets and meteorology in Sweden and beyond, satellite tracking, what he tracked, heard, recorded using radio and tape recorders, how he came to research and write about the satellite tracking conducted at Jodrell Bank Radio Telescope in England. As an 11-year-old, Sven had seen Sputnik in the sky over Sweden with his own eyes. I started by asking him how the onset of the space race has impacted his choice of career. I uh, started at the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm studying engineering physics in the year 1964. Uh, when I was uh, 18 and a half, right out of school. Um, so um, uh, I finished that degree uh, in, in January 1969. Um, and then, um, uh, so that, that's the basic education. Then I studied meteorology. Um, I have several academic credits. The idea, I, um, well, I actually started uh, on a PhD in meteorology, but I, um, I left that and I started working uh, with real space engineering instead. <laughs> I, um, I realized that academic life is interesting, but it was not enough of action for me. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but it was, I mean, uh, meteorology is an interesting subject. The reason why it was turned out to be meteorology is, it's a long story, but it, because when I was, um, um, you know, uh, at the age of 16, uh, 1962, um, I was a member of the Swedish Interplanetary Society, you know, uh-huh. just like the BIS. And uh, um, at that time, uh, the first sounding rocket experiments were, were done in Sweden from a temporary rocket base from a military um, range south of the present S range. And they were looking for people, staff, during, these rockets were launched during the summer to study noctilucent clouds, you know, the clouds at uh-huh. 80 kilometers altitude that appear in, in the summer. And they wanted, um, you know, <laughs> cheap labor. And uh, so, <laughs> so the, um, the, the society, Interplanetary Society, offered their junior members to, uh, to apply for a job um, with this project. So I did, and I got uh, the job for that summer and the two following summers to work in the rocket assembly group 
for 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 this for these launchings, which took they took place at an old old farm, um, you know, in the middle of nowhere in the north of Sweden, and uh, this farm was didn't operate at the time, but there were lots of buildings that could be used for preparing rockets and you know and payloads and stuff. So it was a, a mixture of engineering students, professionals on holiday, and people like me who were still in in school, and mm-hmm. um, and that's where I. I sort of built my network that I've come to um, to use ever since. I still talk to these people that I met there. Um, and and uh, so when these rocket launching stopped in 1964, in the last summer, there wasn't no, there was nothing to follow immediately because rocket launchings were going to move to to S range in Kiruna, and this the, the, these. Um, opportunities disappeared, mm-hmm. and so when I started at uh, re- re- at the Institute of Technology, I thought oh, I need to do something fun. So I talked to the scientist in charge of these experiments, and Professor Witt, who was professor, of, well, later became professor of atmospheric physics at the Institute of Meteorology in Stockholm. So I worked for him for ten years, and my sort of you know while I studied, and, and then gradually I, I had it as a full time job, and that included. Taking pictures of noctilucent clouds with stereo photography over long baselines, you know, uh, 100 kilometers or so, and then later building instruments to launch on rockets to measure ozone, basically. Hmm. So that's why I, I got into to meteorology. Okay, well, let me just take you back to just when you completed your undergraduate studies. So that was in January 1969. Now, for space, the 1960s and particularly 1969, uh, very important years. And in fact, December 68 was the first human mission to the moon. To what extent did that era of the early space race uh, direct your vision to what career you might go into? Very much so. I mean, this is what, uh, and it started much, started much earlier, actually in 1957 when I was 11 and, and Sputnik was launched. And actually, it wasn't Sputnik 1, it was Sputnik 2 that made the deepest impression and made me realize, made me realize that this is what I wanted to, to work with. So when Leica was launched um, in November uh, 1957, mm-hmm. and from then on, this was, that, that was it. I mean, it's... Did you actually see Sputnik in the sky? Oh, yeah, the rocket stage, yes, the Sputnik, you know, nobody saw because it was with the naked eye because it was too small. But uh, the, the last stage of the booster was clearly seen. Uh, I mean, that was, I remember standing uh, with my father at the petrol station uh-huh. in, in downtown Stockholm, and we could see the, uh, the thing twinkling in the sky as it passed by. It was in the evening. So um, oh, um, that was fascinating. Uh, it's quite interesting. Not, not many people realize when they talk about seeing Sputnik, they say we've seen Sputnik, but it's actually not Sputnik, which is quite small, uh, about mm. a meter in diameter, I guess. Probably even less. Mm-hmm. What people actually were seeing was the huge booster that had took it, taken it to orbit in the first place. And that was, was the booster quite bright in terms of the color? Or? Yeah, yeah, it was very bright. I mean, it was no doubt you saw it clearly. I mean, it was. Uh, 20 plus meters long right. and uh, sort of two and a half, three meters in diameter. So it was really obvious when it appeared. So that couldn't, couldn't forget that. <laughs> Even the little Sputnik 3 later in 1958, which was much smaller, but that was easily visible um, summer 1958. By that time, both Sputnik 1 and 2 had decayed from orbit, but Sputnik 3 was easy to spot. Uh, even in the bright summer uh, sky here. So. I'm always, I don't know why, I'm, I'm just fascinated by people's experience of Sputnik, this very iconic event in human history. For those of us who uh, didn't see Sputnik 1, um, you, I'm sure you've seen the International Space Station. Many of us have seen that today. If you were to look at the International Space Station today, how would that experience be different to the view that you had of Sputnik? <laughs> well, I mean, the, 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 every time I see the ISS, I, 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 I think, oh, there are people on board. Uh-huh. You know, it's just, this is not just a, a you know, humdrum satellite. There are people there. And uh, early, a few years ago, while they were still using VHF, VHF radio frequencies, I remember standing at my 
cottage in the middle of a, you know, near midnight on, uh, in midsummer uh, with a radio in my hand, you know, handheld radio receiver, hearing the cosmonauts talk on Russian and seeing the space station in the sky. It was a great experience, you know. <laughs> so, but for those of us um, who, if, if I had been there to see Sputnik 1, uh, would it have been very similar in terms of what I saw, a very bright point of light moving gently across the sky? Yes, absolutely. Uh, but it was it was flashing because the the booster was tumbling, ah. um, so it was flashing on and on while ISS is very it's a steady. Uh, well, you may see flashes sometimes from ISS when the sun is reflected off the solar panels, but ah. um, otherwise it, uh, the ISS is uh, very steady. But uh, the rocket stage from Sputnik was was sort of uh, on and off. Right. I can't remember the frequency, but it was sort of a, a yeah. second or two. But take you back to your meteorology, I guess a lot of the work you were doing in, the, in those early days was using sounding rockets. To what extent did you use sounding rockets in your meteorology work? Uh, th- this group, Atmospheric Physics Group, they, they had uh, several interests. Um, the main one was noctilucent clouds, and, and this group had its own engineering uh, capability, so th- we designed payloads to uh, both collect, try to collect particles from noctilucent clouds. It never worked because you can't collect them, basically. <laughs> and, and the other was to use optical methods to try to, to to determine the characteristics of the of the particles, which was much more successful. So that was one line of inquiry. The other one was uh, a more general one of, of uh, what you, what is it called? Aeronomy, the chemistry and physics of the of that le- part of the of the upper atmosphere. So um, and one experiment that was um, uh, that was built was a photometer to measure to measure ozone in the upper atmosphere. And that was the first uh, r- rocket project that I'd worked on, where well, I worked on the payload myself. Um, and that was it was launched in 1970 from S range. There were five uh, rockets. They were actually British-made SCUA rockets. All of them were launched in the same um, dawn, so as the sun came up, so at various uh, sun elevations. And they'd also carried the instruments to measure the electron density. So the idea was to check how the visible and the ultraviolet light um, affected the um, um, the electron density um, as the uh, as the sun came up. That was my first uh, visit to Estrange, by the way. That was quite a uh, interesting um, uh, experience. We're launching five rockets from the same launcher, and the the shortest distance between two launches was 20 minutes. Oh, uh, so can you just put me on the on the picture in, the, in terms of the map? W- where is this launch site? It is at let me see. It is sixty eight north, twenty one <laughs> east. See, I knew you'd give me that. In terms of uh, the nearest, uh, we are talking about in Sweden here, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. the northernmost corner of Sweden. Uh, oh, I see. So, so uh, the nearest town is name in Swedish is Kiruna. You would probably oh, yeah. pronounce it Kiruna. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, the the range, the rocket range, just um, covers the absolutely northernmost tip of Sweden, and it, the, there's a there is a, a point at the northernmost tip of Sweden where three nations meet in one point: mm-hmm. uh, Sweden, Norway, and and Finland, uh, and it goes all the way up there, um, the, the range, um, and it's practically uninhabited. And when it comes down, presumably you make sure it comes down over into the North Sea. Uh, no, it lands on on ground. Oh, yeah, all rockets are uh, come down inside the range. Ah, I see. Oh, but sometimes <laughs> they land outside. <laughs> but then uh, our neighbors get slightly annoyed. I mean, rockets have been have landed both in Norway and Finland. Right. Um, but it's uh, nobody lives there, so that's not. <laughs> and this is primarily because you have. Instruments on board that are recording and collecting data that you need to recover afterwards. Yes, and that is the advantage that you can get the things back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the um, you could say that the the, the da- downrange area is like tundra. It is you know very low bushes and some you know uh, crooked birches and sometimes it's just flat and it can be stony or I mean, it varies a lot. Um, but it's you it's. Um, uh, there's not much 
there are no high trees at all. You know, they're very low. And, and I guess at this stage in the early 70s, uh, in the absence of GPS, you'd have some sort of a radio transmitter on board that you would use to locate where it uh, where it would end up when it came back. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the, first of all, the the range was equipped with a with a radar, and and some rockets had, had a radar transponder, and some you had to track by skin track, bounce the signals off the skin of the rocket, and then um, and then of course there was a telemetry transmitted to to relay uh, measurement data. And for those payloads where we needed a, a, um, a recovery, there was usually a radio beacon, which the helicopter could listen for when it lo- went looking for it. And then also you could use direction finding uh, antennas on the ground to look for it. And then, of course, there was uh, very often our own um, radio tracking system where, where you could determine the trajectory by actually it was an act, sort of an active system where you sent up a radio signal that came back and you can measure that face difference and then um, um, figuring out the trajectory in that way is a system called tone ranging it's called it. but it wasn't always easy to find the payloads um, <laughs> but it, the, the trick was to try to find them before there was there was snow covering the parachute ah. you had an orange parachute you could see it from afar even in the even in the winter, especially in the winter. Mm-hmm. But if you, if you had to delay sending out the helicopter because of snow, oh, you were in deep trouble. <laughs> you used uh, an interesting word a, a few moments ago, aeronomy. Now, this is the place in between where balloons can go up to about 50 kilometers and below most spacecraft would go these days. So sounding rockets filled in that gap. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what sort of altitude did your sounding rockets get to? Uh, well, the ones that the atmospheric physics group were involved in usually never got, got very much above 120 kilometers. Those interested in space plasma physics usually went higher and and uh, to sort of 400 kilometers or so. Um, I varied some depending on the mission requirements, but but you know if, if it was aimed at the ionosphere. You would try to, to to make the rocket fly slowly through the ionosphere. That is up up to say 105 kilometers. You would like like the rocket to move rather slowly instead of just whizzing past. And, and by moving slowly, you just mean that's got to be the sort of maximum altitude. So it just arrives there before uh, it's turned around in effect, and then starts heading back down to Earth. Mm-hmm, yes. So you could say that the, the velocity, vertical velocity, reaches zero, zero. at peak altitudes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's got to have some uh, peak altitude, I guess, for yeah. all sounding rockets. Um, with all this work in rockets, did you visit any other rocketry launch sites or establishments in in other parts of the world? Yes, actually, um, I visited um, Kuru. This is strange. People, very few people heard of sounding rocket base at Kuru, but there was one. Ah. Um, so in 1974, I participated in a NASA rocket campaign out of Kuru, and I built a, a photometer that measured the ozone density. This was launched together with the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center chemiluminescent ozone probe on the same rocket. The American one didn't work. Mine worked. <laughs> um, <laughs> so anyway, but there was a huge amount of rockets launched in in, over uh, a couple of days, there were so-called sound grenade rockets. Those um, you explode grenades at various heights above the ground to uh, use the sound wave to measure the um, uh, temperature in the atmosphere, because the speed of sound is is proportional to the square root of the absolute temperature. Yes. So you, you could, uh, and, and those are rather uh, spectacular when you launch them. You stand on the ground, and you can see all these smoke blobs appearing as the rocket rises. Mm-hmm. So this was in, um, in the spring of 1974. At that time, the Ariane, or the ELDO program was over, and that's, Ariane hadn't started. So European Launcher Development, development Organization. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that, the old was Blue Streak Booster was lying there, you know, sort of corroding away in a corner. <laughs> right. And, and uh, Ariane wasn't, the first Ariane wasn't launched until five years later. Right. So it was, and the only satellite launches still planned then was a, a French satellite with the old, the, the small French um, launcher Diamant. Oh, yeah. 
Diamond, and that was launched uh, with two more launches of those. <laughs> well, this is quite interesting. I've never come across sound bombs, as you describe them. I'm familiar with the traditional um, sounding rockets um, using sodium payloads so you can see it visually, the distribution of uh, the winds at high altitudes. But sound waves, uh, so the way you described it then, is that as the rocket is ascending, occasion at certain altitudes, they would release some sound bombs, which would then trans, uh, traverse the distance between where the rocket was and the receivers on the ground and uh, understand the distribution of the, specifically ozone, did you say? No, no, it was, this was just temperature. All right. It was, it was temperature. Right. So, well, the trick was that the rocket had a detector that uh, carried a detector, a light detector, which detected the, the flash from the grenade when it exploded mm -hmm. and transmitted this signal to the ground. At the same time, there was radio tracking of the rocket, so you know where it was. Uh -huh. and, so, and, and then there were a, an array of microphones on the ground, and that, those, that array m measured the arrival of the, of the sound waves, sort of wave front, which was not necessarily perpendicular to the ground, or sorry, the front would be parallel. It could be at an angle, mm -hmm. depending on the wind. So oh, what I you see. did is that you compared the the arrival direction of the sound from from consecutive uh, grenades, and then you can determine the wind in the in in the intervening layer. And this was to support the meteorological studies that you're doing. Yes, to to, to figure out what the winds were like aloft uh, at various seasons and altitudes because it it is a bit strange you know both the and then of course the, sp the speed of sound you could compute the temperature the atmosphere is rather funny because in the summer it is very cold at say 80 kilometers and in the winter is the opposite and then of course the wind goes behaves rather strangely and then there are certain uh, how should i put it um uh, temporary events, uh, you know, the spectacular ones when there uh, there are inversions in the wind and whatnot. So it, it's um, a certain seasons of the year, and that was the purpose of these launches from Kuru this, in this case. So I, nowadays, I think most of this has been explored um, and well covered. And nowadays, you can even measure winds by spectrographic methods from orbit. But um, in those days, it was still sounding rockets. Now, these are the early days of investigating the high altitudes in the Earth's atmosphere. I guess all of those measurements and data uh, did inform the modeling, which I guess is used even in today's weather forecasting. Yes, and uh, especially the, the, um, that part of the atmosphere is quite interesting because... Um, you know, the, it's very cold in the stratosphere, and normally you would think that that would, would work as a as a cold trap, and no water vapor would penetrate into the upper atmosphere. But why are there then noctilucent clouds, which actually turn out to be ice, water ice clouds? There's, it's, it, that was a big debate. Where did this come from? Did this water uh, form up there, or did it somehow leak from from below, and if it formed there, how did it get there? And also, uh, there's some discussion that the uh, frequency of noctilucent clouds in the summer is also a measure of global warming. I can't, I don't remember the exact explanation of the mechanism. So it has taken on a, a new interest. And nowadays, you can study them from satellites. It's a, it's an old research theme in Sweden. Uh, these noctilucent clouds, and it's, they've been so for 60 years, and it keeps being a fascinating phenomenon which reveals a lot about about the upper atmosphere and also it's coupling to the lower atmosphere where all the climate change and stuff occurs so um, but anyway i left yeah. this 45 years ago so. <laughs> well no i had no idea that you were involved in sandy rockets and of course although you it was quite some time ago at the time it was the state of art in investigating high altitudes that's just terrific did you yeah. ever go to other Launch sites, perhaps. In, well, you know. um, when I started at the Swedish Space Corporation, which was later in 1975, I went to Wallops Island, Virginia, mm -hmm. and because at that time um, we did a test of a guidance system for sounding rockets that was launched, that was to be used at um, at S range, uh -huh. uh, 
it's no longer used at Airstrange, but it's used at White Sands, New Mexico, by NASA. But the test flight was uh, was out of Wallops, and the system was developed by Saab in those days. Uh, NASA supported it with the rockets and the launch campaigns. That was my first job of going there and writing the so-called flight requirements plan for this launch. And I've been at Wallops, and it's an interesting place, you could say. <laughs> Did you ever go to – I mean, Wallops is quite a long way from, from Sweden, but Russia is much nearer. Did you ever go to Baikonur or Pletsk? No, I've never been to, to any Russian launch site. And I, 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 even though we have launched um, four satellites from Swedish satellites from Russia, I never had the opportunity to go. Either there was some. Usually, it was because I was the boss, and then you, and I had to stay at home and look after things. So it's uh, <laughs> it's the way it is. In in all the fascinating work that you've done throughout your career, I, I guess at some stage it would be right to call you a. A rocket scientist? Oh, well, 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 it sounds very, very flashy. Uh, well, I mean, I used to be one, and and I certainly have a. I still like those projects because they are, they were we could make them rather quickly. I mean, it was a project where you could be a member of from the very beginning to the start to the end, and this was the nice thing about it for teaching and for people doing there, for example. Uh, thesis for for a PhD is that they could be part of it from beginning to end. Well, that is fascinating, Sven. Uh, if I can move over to talk to you about satellite tracking. Now, this is something I know you've uh, spent a lot of time doing. Uh, again, on a, on a personal basis, I, I'm assuming. Um, yes, absolutely. What brought your attention? Why did you get involved in? Tracking satellites, and here I'm talking about um, um, just for these days, people do everything online. But what we're talking about is having an antenna in, in your house, that radio receiver, and you're listening to spacecraft, either telemetry or voice signal through HF signals or VHF signals. That's what we're talking about. What brought yep. you into that in the mid-60s? In the early space age, there were there was a lot of secrecy on what the Soviet Union was doing and uh, m much news about what was going on with Soviet space missions came from, well, sort of semi-official uh, radio observations and from radio amateurs hearing strange bleeps in space. In Sweden, the telecommunications administration had a, a monitoring stations not far from here which were really, uh, which had people attending around the clock. And they picked up a lot of stuff, including cosmonauts speaking, etc. cetera, the, the early cosmonauts. And then there was the famous uh, or infamous uh, Bochum Observatory in Germ Germany with Dr. Heinz Kaminski, who was very good at, at uh, publicizing what, he, uh, what stuff he picked up. Uh -huh. And then there were the um, Italian brothers, Giudica Cordiglias in Torino, who heard all sorts of things, and uh, of course they are uh, sort of infamous through their lost cosmonaut stories. You could hear a lot of interesting things with simple equipment. This was my conclusion, mm -hmm. you know, in uh, sort of around 1960 or so. A school a friend of mine at school and myself, we tried to modify some old surplus radios that we laid hands on. We never really worked. And so, but when I started at at the Royal Institute of Technology in the autumn of 1964, I had some savings from the this rocket campaign, so I thought, I'll buy myself a shortwave radio. And I, you know, I still lived with my parents, I strung up an antenna, started listening, and I thought, were the, were the correct frequencies? I never heard a thing. All of 1965, so I missed all the interesting stuff. I finally realized that I didn't have enough accurate tuning. There is some, used to be, I don't know, it's still there, time code stations transmitting time code or uh, time pulses and the most uh, the one of which, which was nearest the soviet frequencies was a station called wwv uh -huh. a, from the united states it's actually in fort collins colorado it used to be uh -huh. and when the solar activity was high in 1966 i could hear it uh -huh. and um, and it was uh, um, this is station WWV transmitting from Fort Collins, Colorado. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. You know, uh -huh. so I suddenly had been able to tune exactly to 20 megahertz, right. and the, the 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 Russian or the Soviet 
satellites, most of them, the reconnaissance satellites, were 19.995 megahertz. So, and I had the radio tuned to this all the time. And one day when I got home from, from, from school, my dad was home for some reason. And he said, Sven, there was an item on the radio that said that the observatory at Bochum had heard signals from a new Russian satellite. Aha, uh-huh, I said. So I turned on the radio, tuned it to 20 megahertz, and offset a little bit. And an hour later, my first satellite bleeps came in. I realized immediately what it was. It was so obvious that there were satellites, no. satellite transmitting. Did you know that the satellite was going to be overhead at the time? No, I just uh, I just switched on the radio, let it sit there. Ah, I see. And, and uh, you know, and just lit, and it's hissing away in the corner, and all of a sudden I heard this. It turned out to be Cosmos 104, a rather run-of-the-mill reconnaissance satellite. So, um, and that's how it started. And from then on, I, I haven't stopped. <laughs> and I guess being fairly north of the equator, uh, most of the uh, satellites will come over uh, your part of the world um, every few hours anyway. Um, and so you can well, just tune in and just wait for the signal to come through. Now, whatever, whatever, if, if the inclination of the orbit is a little larger than 45 or 47 degrees or something in, in low Earth orbit, I can pick it up. It gets over, over the horizon here. Uh-huh. But, the, but for example, the Chinese space station is too low uh-huh. inclination. It doesn't go over my horizon. Right. ISS gets about 20 degrees above the horizon here. And, and you were focusing primarily on Soviet spacecraft. Uh, is that this is during the sixties? It's the Cold War, uh, so there is a lot of secrecy anyway. In Sweden at that time, you you've got Finland and and the Baltic Sea between you and and, and Russia. Politically, it was not something too sensitive that you were doing. You weren't in, under any threat as a result of doing this kind of activity. Uh, no, I never <laughs> noticed anything. <laughs> I mean, what I mean, the frequencies of these satellites was announced news announcements from the Soviet Union. Uh-huh. Not all of them, but a large fraction of them, their frequency was given. So even for this reconnaissance satellite Cosmos 104, launched on the 7th of January 1966, it said 19.995 megahertz in the TASS announcement. <laughs> and, um, and they said it was for exploration of space, blah, 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 but everybody knew what it was because it came down after eight days. So um, it, recovery capsule, so it's obvious what it was. But they they kept up the pretense and kept publishing these frequencies, and we just lapped them up. So, can, can you just explain that you said it was a recovery capsule? The camera on board, which t- took pictures of uh, other countries, mm-hmm. uh, recorded the images on photographic film, the good old way. Mm-hmm. So, to, to get the pictures back, you need to recover the film to get the film back. Mm-hmm. So, the camera and the the cassette, the film cassette, was inside a recoverable capsule, very similar to Gagarin's space capsule, which is sort of a sphere. All right. And then attached to that was sort of a service module with propulsion and power, etc. So there was a retro rocket on this service module, which which provided uh, an impulse for, for the for the whole thing to leave orbit, and then the, uh, this spherical capsule would come down, re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, get very hot though, and then. Finally, the parachute would come out and it would land somewhere in Russia. And it's quite interesting. Again, not many people would appreciate that old technology, given that these days we get multi-megapixel cameras on our phones. But we are talking about traditional film, which is the only way to get the high-resolution images from these photo-reconnaissance-type satellites that we're talking about. And were there cases um, where, apart from parachuting down to the ground, but I think some certainly used by the American, where there was a technique where these returning ca- uh, fo- photographic cartridges it's coming back through the atmosphere were recovered by helicopters. No, no. I don't think they were, they were too heavy. Right. I mean, in this case, um, they, they weighed um, about, about two tons. <laughs> I see. And, um, right. But then there was a later model, which was called Amber or Yantar, which are smaller capsules, uh-huh. which you know, almost could hold in your lap, uh, which came down with a film. But I, they were not recovered by helicopters either. And I think the reason why was the accuracy of the, the landing point wasn't big enough. 
the helicopters would be at the wrong place at yeah. the wrong time, so to speak. So it's better to just let them pop down on these huge steps of, of Russia and then you, you pick them up. But we actually detected the radio beacon. That's funny. I mean, we we, we realized that the, the, these spacecraft, when they came down, they transmitted on the same frequency a recovery beacon, location beacon, mm -hmm. and consisting of two letters. The first, the most of them transmitted TK. There were TGs and TFs, etc. But it was almost we knew roughly when the sun was going to come down, and then we heard the normal signals disappear, and then. Maybe I can't remember. It was what eight or nine minutes later, these, this beacon signal came on, on and uh, then we know it was coming down. And very often you could hear a sudden decrease in the signal strength of the, this beacon signal. That was probably when the capsule landed and the, the parachutes sort of crumbled up on the ground and the antenna and the parachute lines started lying on the ground instead of being stretched out vertically. So that's when the signal strength was wiped out. So we could even sort of guess when exactly when it landed. It was fun. I know you're fairly geographically fairly close to Russia. A lot of the TAS announcements, uh, some of them can be in English, but to what extent did you have to have a, a, an awareness of the Russian language to do what you were doing? Uh, well, I mean, in those days, I don't know if they still have it, but the Radio Moscow had an English language service, mm -hmm. which we listened to every evening. And, uh, you know, and they, they usually announced uh, these launches. They didn't give the frequency in the, in the radio announcement, but that, that seeped out, uh, you know, we, after a while we could guess which kind of satellite it was. But because they published the orbital elements as well. Altitude and the inclination the, the, of the orbital plane to the equator, and it was a dead giveaway because oh, this is this kind of satellite. It's going to transmit on this frequency, etc. So it was after a while we had this pretty well figured out. And what kind of equipment? I mean, you'd probably need, I guess, a sophisticated antenna and receiver to receive these types of signals. Or is oh, that the case? It was so simple. Right. It was a shortwave radio, which is something you could buy. I think my first one cost, in those days, 400 crowns, uh, which is, uh, you know, if you, uh, it's hard to say, but <laughs> or a pound was worth 15 crowns in those days. So uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't very expensive. And I just drawing a, a copper wire from the, my, the, my window to a nearby, uh, you know, post and, uh, and hooked up to that line to the radio. And... Uh, it just came straight in. It was ridiculously simple. <laughs> Sounds fascinating. And yeah. what, um, I mean, apart from being able to judge um, from the types of signals and frequencies, what kind of missions were taking place, you must have also been able to pick up some telemetry from the signals and, and maybe some voice as well? Telemetry, yes. These signals were so-called pulse duration modulated. So um, the, the frequency was shifting back and forth between two levels. So bee-boo, bee-boo, something like that. And then uh -huh. the length of each, how long it stayed at each of these frequencies was a measure of a, a, a value, something measured on board. So, and we call those words. So uh, and this, the sequence of these words repeated every 15 seconds. Or approximately, and there were fifth, was it 15 or 16 words? I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh -huh. In the what we call a frame, and then we of course monitored how long all these words, and we could you could actually hear it. And you say, oh, now word seven is long. You know, oh, that's interesting. And now word twelve is short, etc., etc. You can, you could, we could, even by just listening by the naked ear, so to speak, you could figure out and hear changes in the telemetry. Later on, we, we, we were able to use pen recorders to strip this out. This was before personal computers. You had to have electromechanical things to well, ink and things to, to strip them out and look at them. And then, of course, it was obvious what was going on. That was, we, that we did a lot of that. And that was, um, you know, I joined um, the, the, the Kettering Group of Space Trackers in the UK, of course, under uh, Jeff Perry. Altogether, we were quite, uh, several. I was the first foreign member of the group, and there were others as well. Uh -huh. And and we so we figured this out uh, and explored it rather carefully. And for example, we could listen to the shortwave telemetry from a Soyuz spacecraft and figure out how many cosmonauts were on board. Listening to the Russian cosmonauts, I presume they were speaking Russian, so you would not be able to tell exactly what they were speaking about. 
first of all, when I when I entered, started listening to, to these satellites, they were they had just finished the Voskhod series then, and and Alexei Leonov had made the first spacewalk, and there was a big break in the Soviet human spaceflight program for about you know a couple uh, two years, two and a half years, and then they started launching the Soyuz spacecraft. But by that time, they had more or less left shortwaves for voice. So we picked up very, very little um, voice on shortwaves for many years. It took us actually seven years before we were able to find the VHF uh, voice frequency. And they're still using that frequency, by the way. I just (laughs) picked them up the other day from the Soyuz MS-9. It's 121.75 megahertz. It happens to be the same frequency that the snow clearing crews at the nearby Arlanda Airport use. Oh, <laughs> they have a different modulation though, AM. But it's some in the winter. There was a lot of mixed snow clearing talk and cosmonauts at the same time. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so we and we found out this frequency because it was actually made public in connection with the preparations for the Apollo Soyuz test project, where the Russians and the Americans docked two spacecraft for the first time in 1975. And then this frequency somehow got into the public domain Uh and we started listening and the rest is simple. (laughs) That was very simple to pick up also, I can tell you. When the um, the Russians um, had this program called Intercosmos where they flew astronauts Uh from different nations on board the Russian space uh, station, did you pick up any non-English, uh, sort of that non-Russian transmission mm-hmm. from the space station. Uh, yeah, the, the only one in those days that I actually could hear, understand it was uh, Sigmund Jähn from Germany. Since I took four years of German in school, I could understand what he said. <laughs> oh. uh, I can't remember which year it was, but that was that was fun. Uh, you could hear that they were not Russian because they, they had a funny accent as a Russian. <laughs> right. uh, and <laughs> usually you could figure out who was who. Uh, because very often the, the cosmonauts, um, they, they actually identified themselves. For example, if the, if the, the commander had the, the call sign Bjerkut, which is Golden Eagle, uh-huh. the, the co-pilot had the call sign Bjerkut 2, Golden Eagle 2. Uh, I see. <laughs> so he would identify, he would say, Ja, Bjerkut 2, this is Golden Eagle 2. And then we knew who it was. Uh, by the way, Bjerkut was the call sign of the of the fourth Soviet cosmonaut, Pavel Popovich. So he was launched also in 1974 on a mission. <laughs> Did you? I, I know you recorded some of these uh, um, interactions that you've had over the years. Did you capture any of the communications between? I think it was Soyuz T11 and Soyuz Salyut 7 when the Indian astronaut Rakesh Sharma went up and spent a Oh dear! I have to look up my my my, my log. <laughs> now I'm just curious because that was one of the examples which I know where there was a transmission in English and in Hindi as well uh, from uh, Salute Seven. Yeah, sure. I'll look it up, uh, and if I find it, I'll send you the recording. You were able to figure out what uh, the Russians were doing during different types of uh, who the cosmonauts were, what kind of missions, where they were landing, when they were taking off. and Were there any instances of your experience where you detected anything in the way of anti-satellite testing that the Russians were involved in at that uh, early stage? Uh, oh, yes. Those were also rather obvious. Um, there was a 1981 there, there was uh, an anti-satellite experiment made, uh, Cosmos t- t- 1241 intercepted 1243, or it was the other way around. Uh-huh. Um, we were rather well prepared for this because radio amateurs had picked up weird signals on the radio amateur two-meter band years before this happened. This, uh-huh. and uh, they sounded, and they were very wide band signals, and it sounded like a vacuum cleaner they, uh, <laughs> they, they they complained but after a while it turned out that they came from target satellites the russians had launched satellites to work as target for target practice with the with the with the anti-satellite weapons these signals were at 145 megahertz right smack dab in the middle of the radio amateur band the two meter band so when the, the 
this in 81, when this target was launched, we figured out immediately what was going on. And by that time, I had, uh, you know, the correct radio to tune it. So, and I picked up the vacuum cleaner sounding signals immediately. And then we had, we looked at previous anti-satellite tests. It was this Jeff Perry and myself. And we figured out exactly which day they would launch the, the killer satellite. Uh, exactly which time of day it was, it was easy to figure out once you knew the orbit of the target uh-huh. and then we knew from you know in the trade press which kind of rocket launched it it turned out that the telemetry transmitters on satellites launched by the same rocket usually were on the same frequency don't ask me why but this is the, uh, something we, we found out so I figured out that the, that the telemetry must be on 166 megahertz on the, on the day where which we figured out that the killer satellite would be launched. First, I picked up the target, and a few minutes later, I retuned to 166, and lo and behold, there was the killer satellite. Uh, and uh, and they, I think that particular intercept, they got rather close. They made many tests. I can't, this is the penultimate one, I think, um, and they used different sensors. Some were optical and some were radar, and... And in general, it was a it was a successful program. Um, and what kind of anti-satellite tests were there? Were they connected where one would just hit the other, or one would approach, get in the close vicinity, and then explode? Do the the latter. You know, go to get to the vicinity and explode. And the interesting thing is that the target satellites were launched into typical orbits. One, some of them were launched into low Earth orbit, looking like an American reconnaissance satellite, and the other would be put in a higher orbit at about a thousand kilometers, simulating the American transit navigation satellite system. This was before GPS, uh-huh. which were used to guide the um, submarine launched, you know, nuclear submarines at the high seas to 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 be able to aim their missiles at at the Soviet Union. And the, this particular one that I mentioned, we monitored in '81, was uh, the target was in this higher orbit, a thousand kilometers. One of the ones in the lower orbit, the intercept was actually seen from southern Sweden. Oh. Uh, an explosion where, where the where the killer cell actually exploded near the target. You know, the general public just saw it in the sky. That's really interesting, and I wasn't aware of anything like that having been observed. Anti-satellite tests at a thousand kilometers. The debris that's generated, it's going to be staying up there for quite a while, isn't it? You, you know, I'm not sure that the act, when they actually did this thing, that they actually destroyed the target. I'm not sure they did. Uh-huh. But, I, but the target had a device that measured the mist distance. Mm-hmm. So and that's more important, that they would come close enough. So I think it was a sort of a simulated approach. And but the one for this low orbit, there was a real explosion. And I think the reason why is that it was so low that the debris would decay. Mm-hmm. But this higher one, I, I can't remember. I don't think they they actually blew it up. But I, I have to look back. Yeah, I suspect even then they they were aware uh, that if they did use such high altitude for their explosions, that part of the orbit would uh, uh, has it for everybody, yeah. including themselves. If I can move you on, um, Sven, to mm-hmm. Jodrell Bank. Now, I know oh. you've written quite extensively on the uh, early history of what Jodrell Bank was involved in. But first, Jodrell Bank is miles away from where you live. Why did you get interested in Jodrell Bank? First of all, it was sort of always in the news in the 60s when there were big events in space, especially Russian things, because... Uh, and they had the capability to 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 listen to the signals, you know, these space probes going to the moon and to Venus. It was certainly very much in the news. I should just uh, say for people who are not familiar, Jodrell Bank, the very first, very large, fully steerable, uh, seventy-five meter diameter uh, radio telescope, just on the outskirts of Manchester here in England. Yes, absolutely. And it came on so, uh, just as uh, Sputnik was launched. Yeah, exactly. So it it was when I in 1967, a year after I joined the the Kettering group of space trackers, I visited Jeff Perry in Kettering, and we drove up to Jodrell Bank, and met the people who had just the year before received the first signals from the from the lunar surface from Luna Nine, the Soviet space program that was the first to land on the moon, and. Um, 
And so that was fascinating to hear the stories and how they were able to to uh, actually get the picture out of the signals. I've always thought it was interesting. So I, And I, I realized there was no real history of what they had done. It was just, I had lots of newspaper clippings and whatnot, but nobody had actually written written up the whole thing. So I decided to do it. Uh, I knew where the archive, the Notre Bank archives were, was the John, John Rylands, 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 Rylands Library in downtown Manchester. So I, I I bought tickets for my wife and myself, and we traveled to Manchester. I spent the whole, whole day inside the library while she was out um, the, doing the first sightseeing tour of the city that, that spring uh-huh. that the bus company organized. She was the only passenger. I remember oh. that. She got, she got royal treatment so every nook and cranny of Manchester <laughs> while I was sitting inside reading all these, uh, these original documents. Uh-huh. There were original printouts of messages from the Soviet Academy of Sciences aware that Jordan Bank should point their antenna to pick up the moon probes, etc. Absolutely fascinating. And then I wrote, wrote it up and published it on my website. Then I got contacted by the public relations people at Goddard Bank, and they wanted to use it. So if you really dig hard, you can find it in their web, website, my story about their work. Oh. Which is kind of fun. And I also wrote to Sir Bernard mm. about some things and got a very, uh, very polite replies, I must say. Very, very nice. And, and for people who are not familiar, Sir Bernard Lovell was the director, who, the driving force behind Jodrell Bank, and he died about three, four years ago. And you don't really need to work, uh, dig very deep. All your uh, work that you did on the Jodrell Bank's role in early space tracking activities is accessible via Jodrell Banks website, and I'll put a link on yeah. on, on this page. Mm-hmm. Now, okay. that's quite, I've, I've had a quick scan through. It's a very thorough piece of work. Did you ever think about publishing it as a as a book or something? Yes, yes, I have. I have actually uh, reformatted it as a normal manuscript, but it's I just haven't had the time. But one, <laughs> one day I'll do it. And the interesting thing with it, it was really I don't, at my website. I've added some interesting pictures. Uh-huh. Because, you know, if you publish something online, people react to it. And all of a sudden, there was a gentleman in the United States who said, my dad used to work there with the American tracking equipment when it's tracking American lunar probes. And he took all these pictures uh-huh. and he sent me these fantastic colored pictures. So Bernard at his desk, all sorts of stuff, fantastic pictures of the telescope and and so some of these I've got permission to, to, to publish online at my website. So that that's the nice thing about, about running a website. You attract information. People tell you things which you don't know. And people say, well, this is interesting. I, I know exactly what happened. And they give you the whole story. <laughs> that's, that's fun. And, and you're quite right. Uh, this, this is uh, ongoing. You know, so many things come out. I remember when I published my book about Yuri Gagarin's visit to London and Manchester. Um, uh, about a year later, a lady contacted me and she still had a ticket to the <laughs> invite to which Gagarin was uh, invited at the Amalgamated Union of Foundry Workers in Manchester. Um, wow. <laughs> she still had a ticket. So I actually got a, uh, I've got a, an image of it somewhere. But you, I'm really glad to hear that you are still in the process of uh, updating and publishing this. So I really look forward to, to that. Mm. Um, we're going to be running out of time soon. So let me just move a little bit on to uh-huh. these days. You use um, software-defined radio to do your tracking and, uh, and, and work online. Just tell us a little bit about what uh, software-defined radio is and how it works and how you use it in particular. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um... I'm, I'm no expert on it. I use it as as I would any other device. But it it's what it based instead of a classical radio where where all the all the signal processing of the incoming radio signal is done in hardware. Only part of that is made in hardware and the rest in software. So what what it actually consists of, you could say very roughly, is an analog to digital converter. Mm-hmm. So it digitizes the incoming radio signal 
and then all the rest is done in software. So, um, uh, for example, um, and then of course, then the analog to digital conversion has to be very fast mm -hmm. because you need a lot of samples per second to to be able to do something with the with the things you you uh, you get. But this means that you could um, basically do any kind of demodulation afterwards and manipulate the signal whichever way you want. Uh, the nice thing is that you can record it in two ways. Either you have a de detector, which is used to be called, so good, if it's amplitude modulation or frequency modulation or whatever, and then you record the actual voice signals, for, exa for example. Or this has the capability of doing something called saving the so-called baseband signal, which is the actually the the digitized signal itself, instead of the sound, the digital. And then you can actually, at any time later, do whatever you want with the digitized signal. And uh, so if you save it in that way, you could process it later in whichever you want, way you want. You don't need, don't need to do the processing, detecting whatever is said then. You could do it much later. You can manipulate filters and radio, stuff like that. So it, it is making the radio... Actually, you do all the all the interesting stuff is done in software. So the the radio itself is ridiculously small. Right. I mean, it, the one the ones that you look like a USB memory, uh -huh. and that's it. And it covers everything from DC to daylight, so, as my friend <laughs> used to say. But, so, but presumably, you're still using an external antenna that you need uh, to collect yeah. the signal from. Mm -hmm. And a preamplifier to amplify the stuff comes from the antenna. Yeah, sure. And is it possible? Uh, I'm just familiar with you know we're using Skype to speak to each other, and you can connect to IP cameras all over the world. Mm -hmm. Is it possible to connect an antenna that's remote from where you are to your laptop and your SDR? SDR. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you yeah. connect an ex external remote antenna to it? Yeah, well, one could set up an, another station somewhere uh -huh. in the world uh, with a software-defined radio and an antenna, and there are software-defined radios which connect to the Internet. Right. So you could, I could control it from my desk if I wanted to. Right. And that, that, that's, those are available commercially. So if I find uh, somebody who is willing to uh, put up an antenna and host my SDR, I could track from anywhere. And this is actually done. There's a satellite uh, which is called FunCube, which is uh, uh, developed through the uh, amateur radio satellite uh, organization in the UK, AMSAT UK. Uh -huh. And that satellite um, uh, transmits housekeeping telemetry and also, you know, sort of date on its status and also it's used as a radio relay for radio amateurs during the weekends. But during the weekdays, it's used for educational purposes in schools. There, there you could uh, you, you you can buy this software-defined radio, uh -huh. 200 pounds, I think it is, uh -huh. and software to decode it. It's called a dashboard, uh -huh. software dashboard. I just hook this up and it, it, it picks up the signals and stores it in the in your computer and then downloads it to a server at AMSAT UK. So everybody who has a device like that is connected to AMSAT UK and they get telemetry from all over the world from the satellite. They don't need tracking stations all over the place. Uh -huh. uh, crazy people like me do it for them. <laughs> <laughs> So that's an example of how, how, how it's done nowadays. It's, it's quite fun. So I take it you're not using any of your traditional analog kit and only using SDR these days. What sort of uh, spacecraft are you tracking? What uh, uh, insights can you give us into your activities today? I have uh, three antennas. One is uh, for VHF, which I use for, for FunCube and for Soyuz's, you know, listen to voice from Soyuz, etc. That, that I don't use that so much, but it's available. <clears throat> and I mean, just last week, I, I, well, was it week before last, I picked up the, the Soyuz MS-9 uh, crew. And then I have an antenna pointing straight up. It's a little helical antenna with three turns, and it's, uh, uh, what is it, uh, two inches in diameter. And, uh, oh, you know, right. Uh, and it, it works on the so-called S-band frequency. And S-band is a standard frequency band at around 2.3 gigahertz for all sorts of satellites. It's used by almost everybody. 
And uh, so, and then I just hook that up to a software-defined radio, and it uh, you get a spectrum of the signals, whatever it picks up on the screen. So, got waterfall spectrum, which moves with time. What you call it, a scanner, because it's uh, uh, the SDR itself cannot handle these high frequencies. So, so it's a down converter, but that's a that's a detail. Uh, and then I just tune around. If there's something launched which goes over here, which I'm interested in, in seeing what, what's happening, I just tune that and wait for the satellite for pause to pause. And I, I know the orbital elements. I have software to predict when the satellites are around, mm -hmm. and I can see what kind of signal it is and see if it's active or not. And that's uh, uh, very easy to pick up. You know, you, you know, I don't get information out of it, but I can do. I can, you know, data, but I can see. Uh -huh type of signal it is, when it passes, if it's active or not, and what the orbital period is, and this and that. Strangely enough, this is really weird, but I've actually used this itty-bitty antenna to track a Japanese spacecraft around the moon. Uh -huh. well. <laughs> uh, it, it's really strange, but the, you see, in the winter, the moon is very high in the sky, and it was so high in the sky that actually in the beam of this antenna, which is pointing straight up, I knew the frequency of this uh, of this spacecraft. This was about oh, eight years ago or something like that. And then I, I just cranked down the the detection band. You can you can narrow down the how narrow a frequency band you actually listen to. And this is all done in software. So I cranked it down to 0.1 hertz. That's nice. very narrow. Hmm. And just set the the, the spectrum display unit to that and let it sit. And lo and behold, the Doppler curve came out. The, 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 the frequency, uh, the signal from the carrier signal from the lunar spacecraft came out very nicely. And you can see it as it went around the moon. It changed in frequency because of the Doppler change. Uh -huh. Dopp the Doppler changes, you know, when an ambulance passes you, it, the pitch of the, of the sound changes. Mm -hmm. That is because of the motion. Same thing with satellites. If they move, there's frequency changes. So I could see this uh, as it went around the moon and <coughs> the disappeared behind the back of the moon and came back again. Um, and I was just surprised. This little thing could pick up something from the moon. So. That's fascinating. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> now, finally, Sven, um, Sweden has, uh, I'm surprised to learn, quite a rich history in, in space exploration. I, I remember being amazed to read that the Hasselblad cameras that were used in India in 19, early 1962 uh, in Kerala to assess disease of coconut trees, uh, this particular disease called coconut wilt, mm -hmm. gave rise to the Indian remote sensing program and indeed the Indian space program itself. And those cameras were made in Sweden. I'm guessing they were made at the Royal Institute of Technology, which is where you work what what is it you're doing? Is it uh, have you retired? Yes, I mean um, I worked for the Swedish Space Corporation for 31 years full time, and then uh, uh, so I retired actually. Oh, who is it? It's 12 years ago at the age of 60. So um, and then I worked for the skipped working for them as a consultant. Um, so when I was at the Swedish Space Corporation, I I, I was a general manager of the. Space Systems Division, 80 people developed satellites, and, and we built several satellites, um, including a lunar probe for ESA. So, I mean, I, I spent most of my years at the Swedish Space Corporation working on satellite projects. That's a long story, so I won't tell it, but anyway, so when I when I retired then, and, and uh, I did various consultancy stuff, and yeah. wrote books and things like that. Then then my wife passed away and six years ago, and then I had nothing to do. And after she passed away, I mean, it's, uh, I was rather simply very bored. <laughs> I mean, uh, to be quite honest, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I was sort of, life felt a bit meaningless, mm -hmm. I could say. Then, of course, um, uh, one day, the Sweden's uh, first and so far only astronaut, Christa Fuglesang, who was a professor at the Royal Institute of Technology, called me and said, Sven, would you like to be a project manager of a student satellite project, a CubeSat um, project. So that was in 2014, and we started, now it's three years ago since we s kicked off the project. So the idea is then to build um, a three-unit CubeSat and, and use students as much as possible to for the design analysis. We buy a lot, some parts, 
eight scientific and technical experiments developed by various organizations in Sweden, most of them from the KTH, of course. And then all the analysis, testing, and software design is made by students. So uh, I've had approximately 15 students per semester. Uh-huh. They stay one semester. Now we're going to uh, increase it to stay a whole academic year. Supervisors to help me. And um, uh-huh. it's so- it's a lot of work. And, uh, and uh, it's, it's supposed to be 30% of my time, but I'm there every day at starting at six o'clock most of the day. Administration work, of course, but also a lot of interesting technical work. And I'm sure all the students will benefit from your years of accumulated experience, and um, <laughs> I hope so. we will also benefit. And I would just want to uh, say that although we've only been speaking for an hour, we've only just touched on the remarkable activities that you've conducted and I'm so glad to hear that um, A, you've recorded a lot of the work that you've done and you're going to be publishing it and bearing in mind that your recordings being original as they are might in some cases be the only instances which are available so thank you very much for your time today Yeah, yes, Gurbir, thanks a lot Thank you, Gurbir Bye-bye